morning, everybody. Good morning, Jeff. It's great to see all of you this morning. As always, what a privilege it is to gather with the saints and worship our King and Lord. Turn your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Let's get right into it, to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, we're going to be reading through uh, chapter 9. And I'm going to be finishing up, really, I'm going to be going through verses uh, 11 through 27 this morning. But I really am going to cover the entirety of the chapter because it's literally, literally impossible to start right in the middle of this chapter without bringing the other verses into play. But I'm going to start from verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 11. I'm reading from the King James Version. I know you all appreciate that. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, He is, behold, he is before you. Make haste or hurry, for he came today to the city for there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. And as soon as you come into the city, you shall straightway find him before he go up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he come, because he doth bless the sacrifice. And afterwards they eat that be bidden. Now therefore get you up, for about this time you shall find him. And they went up into the city, and when they were come into the city, behold, Samuel came out against Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I'll send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry is come unto me. And when Samuel, and when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said unto him, Behold, the man whom I speak to thee of, the same shall reign over my people. Then Samuel drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me into the high place, for you shall eat with me today and tomorrow, and I will let thee go, and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. And as for thine Donkeys that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found, and on whom is all the desire of Israel. Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? And Saul answered and said, and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? And Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the parlor and made them sit in the chiefest place, among them that were bidden, which were about thirty persons. And Samuel said unto the cook, Bring the portion which I gave thee, of which I said unto thee, Set it by thee. And he took up the shoulder and that which was upon it, and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Behold that which is left, set it before thee, and eat. For unto this time hath it been kept for thee, since I said, I have invited the people to Saul did eat and Samuel that day. And when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel communed 
with Saul upon the top of the house. And they arose early, and it came to pass about the spring of the day that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, Up, that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out both of them, he and Samuel abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us, and he passed on. But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we're just thankful for our time together this morning. And Lord, we just commit, we commit this time into your hands, Lord. And we ask God that you'd breathe upon it, you'd empower it, Lord, for your glory. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help me, Lord, to proclaim the word in your spirit, Lord God, as a worship unto thee. And Lord, I pray for your people today, Lord, that you would open their hearts to be able to receive the word of God, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would grant them, Lord God, an ability to, that they would be able to hear you speak in your word. Not my words, Lord, but your words. Remove any obstacle, Lord, any um, adversity that would keep them, Lord, that would um, keep them from hearing what it is that you would say to them this morning. Let us commit this time into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this morning's message is titled, God's Providence Through Our Chaos. God's Providence Through Our Chaos. And this is lessons learned from the early life of Saul. Let me just uh, start by saying this. This message uh will probably end up being two parts because it doesn't look like, based upon the uh, this sermon, that I'll be able to get through the entirety of it in the time that we have this morning. So more likely it'll be broken down into two separate messages. This drama in this chapter disposes itself in five scenes. These are the five scenes that ultimately we'll be looking at uh, through today and next Sunday. The number one, uh, the first scene is... is uh, we have first Saul seeking his father's donkeys, as we have read in 1 Samuel 9, 3 through 5. Secondly, there is the meeting between the prophet, which we read in 1 Samuel chapter 9, 6, verse 6 through 21. And then thirdly, the introduction to the people. We read in 1 Samuel 9, 22 uh, through 24. And then fourthly, the communion on the housetop, which we read in 1 Samuel chapter 9, 25 through 26. And fifthly, uh, is the anointing uh, and, and the preaching of the word to Saul, but the anointing of Saul, which you read in 1 Samuel 9.27 and 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Let's look at the first one, God's providence through chaos, which we read here in the first uh, disposition here is that we have first Saul seeking his father's donkeys. And I know this has been covered. I know Sean really dealt with this in its entirety um, last Sunday, but I would like to briefly go over some of these points and how we're able to um, look at these in a way that we can honor God. I use the word, first of all, chaos, because I found it to be the word that really accurately describes the career of Saul, especially his entrance um, upon the scene of our chapter this morning. Chaos, the word chaos defined is really, it really means it is a state of utter confusion and disarray, which we know is the exact opposite 
of order. And this is really ultimately what happens to anyone who rejects God, who suppresses the truth of God and wants to move into an arena of self and allowing um, this autonomy in their own life to be the arbitrator of truth, to be able to want to do life without God, to really, as we preached before, heard me preach before, really getting our own way. And what happens when we decide to reject God and we go the route of wanting doing things, wanting to do things in our own way? The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13, 15 says, good understanding gives favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. Another translation says, but the way of the faithless is difficult. Now, this can be read in a few ways. It can be read as an unbeliever's life, where they say the the way of the transgressor is hard, but Scripture doesn't indicate that a sinner's life and transgressing is hard. It seems to be very easy uh, for a sinner to sin. They seem to enjoy sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible says the pleasures of sin are for a season, that there's a pleasurable aspect of a sinful person, unregenerate, enjoying sin as much as a dog would automatically bark or a tree, a fruit tree or an orange tree uh, bearing uh, fruit of an orange. It's just part of the nature of a sinner is to sin. And the sad part of it is that most of the time they enjoy their sinful lives. When you become a believer, when you become converted, when you become born again, God gives you new desires. He gives you a new heart and springs forth new fruit, right? And this idea of transgressing is miserable. How many of you have experienced, you have to raise any hands, experienced this in your own lives where um, the old way of life, trying to reinstitute that into your life now is miserable. Have you ever had certain sins come back into your life and you fall into a, a season uh, where you are seeing yourself repeating some of the patterns that you repeated before when you were lost and the difficulty it is now being a believer. This transgression is difficult. It's miserable. It's insane. It's chaotic to live this way anymore. A true believer cannot go on this way for very long, unless, of course, he is not of the Lord. Israel rejected God, and in return, they received what their hearts Desire, that's a scary place to be. That in your rejection of God, in your rebellion, that you've gotten to such an extent you've rebelled against God for so long because you want to go your own ways and God gives you the desserts of your own heart. As it says in Malachi, that we've read before, that God bless, God curses their blessings. What do you mean? It's that God allow you to such an extent as the quail in the times of when uh, Moses brought Israel out and they wanted quail. They didn't want the manna. So God allowed them to have it to such an extent where they vomited it out of their nose. Look at the Pharisees. They said they got their reward. You got your attention from man. 
You got exactly what you wanted. The whole reason you perform in the way that you perform is because you seek, as Jesus said, the glories of man. Therefore, here's your reward. You got all the attention, but you're going to split hell wide open because it does nothing to gain approval with God. As a matter of fact, it's that legalism that God hates. Just as much as people say, well, listen, you know, we've got worldliness and we've got legalism. Really, they're both worldliness. You realize that? Because it's not like one aspect to the other in such an extent. I mean, Luther said either on one side of the horse is you got, you know, you got um, worldliness and you get on the horse, you fall off the other side to legalism. But the reality is here is that even legalism, this false view and perverted view of a false interpretation of, of the scriptures and the law of God can really be something that the world loves to. Look at all these religions out there. They're religions of the world. They're not religions of the Lord. These come out the seedbed of a depraved heart. Mormonism, Islam, all these things aren't godly religions that all come to the same place. All these religions, this legalism, this idea that man can be made right with God by what they do is absurd. It's sinful and just as aggravating to God as the world would be. And the world is saying, understand, all these are worldly concepts. They're not separated. They're all of the world, all against God, all in rejection and, and fruit from rebellion. And basically, chaos is a series of events that don't necessarily make sense to us. Now, let me just go back a little bit so we don't lose the thought here. The idea is here is that we as believers, and we can look at the life of Saul, and we can take from that benefits to the Christian life because we can see Paul's introduction biblically on the scene that it's very confusing. Like, I mean, not so confusing so much to us reading the word, but his, his, his life is seen. I mean, it could, be, it could mean lost donkeys, endless wandering the countryside with your father's servant, in which the Bible says three times that they couldn't find, that they found them not. I mean, this is three times in a row, covering a lot of land in what looked like a lot of wasting of time wandering around, wandering around, never finding out where they're going to such an extent that God has to repeat that three times, three times, they found them not. To where they say in verse five, let us return home because we've been gone so long. We've wasted so much time. Because my father probably would begin to worry because of this reality. Saul's servants seem to be, have a better grasp and knowledge and how to conduct the affairs of life than Saul did. Some theologians believe that the servant here is a representation or a type of the Holy Spirit which is leading the lost sinner ultimately to the prophet who represents Christ. The journey eventually leads to two maidens or two virgins, right? And they give them the much needed information that they needed to find Samuel. God chooses the most unlikely of characters, the most offensive, unlikely of characters to bring about his reality. Even in the midst of chaos, even when we think we have, you know, made one step forward, right? How many, 
times you heard people say that, taking one step forward, but what? Three steps backwards, right? We hear that all the time. And how many times in your own life have you been coming hard after the Lord, devoted, faithful, pursuing God, pushing in, and then out of nowhere, something happens, a calamity, adversity, where you just start procrastinating. You start getting cold for whatever reason. You start becoming callous and indifferent. Next thing you know, one thing leads to another. It seems like, man, I'm just running 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. We've all gotten like that before. But we must understand the reality of these things because they all come back to the providence of God. I mean, up until this point, these guys must have been extremely exhausted. I'm exhausted just reading about it. At least from our perspective, it is. But all of this, even if our definition of chaos doesn't fit perfectly, I mean, there is no such thing as, I mean, there is such thing as distractions and procrastinations, unplanned, spontaneous surprises seem to fit into our definition as chaos, but ultimately, with our Lord, they fit perfectly well into what we would call God's providence. All these things fit perfectly. You think, how in the world can my life, as crazy as it has gotten, how dead I feel, even sometimes to the faith, to God's word, to the people of God, to what God's called me to do, all the mess-ups, all the things I have totally destroyed, how can you tell me that this is part of the providence of God. Well, I'll tell you this morning, it's part of the providence of God. God has ordained everything that has come to pass. Divine providence is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all the things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control over all things. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole, which you read in Psalm, Psalms 103, the physical world, Matthew 5.45, the affairs of nations, Psalm 66, human destiny, we read in Galatians 1.15, human successes and failure, failures in Luke 1.52, and the protection of his gospel, Psalm 4, chapter 8. The doctrine stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by chance. And by fate. First Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not the author of chaos. He's not the author of confusion, but of peace. Another translation renders it this way. For God is not a God of disorder. God is not a God of disorder. So then where's all the disorder come from? Well, it comes from us. Ourselves, Satan, the world, and our own sinful nature creates all kinds of distractions, all kinds of disorder, all kinds of chaos in our lives. But if, it, if you're like me, you know, sometimes you, you look at this chaos as an indication that you've totally lost it. Sometimes it even looks like we may have shipwrecked our faith. But we can't be of that mindset, brothers and sisters. Certainly not if you've been born of God. You have to understand the reality of living in a fallen world and living with a fallen nature. Now, yes, we're born again. We are led in the Spirit of God, don't get me wrong. But we are going to struggle 
until we leave this world and we become glorified where sin is no more. My goal this morning is really to lay emphasis on this reality that you don't look at your chaotic situations of life. You may be in a chaotic situation this morning where it looks like everything is really gone to hell in a handbasket. But if you take the view that you understand that ultimately God is sovereign over all of this and he'll work it out for his own glory, either on this side of eternity or the other side, it will eventually come to a conclusion that you can rest in because won't the judge of the whole world do right? Yes. This is our hope. This is what gave the covenanters during the times of the Reformation when their churches were being persecuted and the king was trying to take over the school, I mean, taking over the church, telling the church what it could and can't do, with the church, which was the king never has a right to tell King Jesus what to do or his church. They gave up their lives, but they, the, 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 the reason why they were able to endure such difficult times and losing their lives was because of the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You live your whole life and everything depends upon you, your salvation, your life, everything. You live this way. It's going to be very difficult to reason in your mind when things go wrong. What about my loved one who passed away out of nowhere? What about my child? What about these things that, that occur in my life? What about this sickness that has come upon me? What about this daily aggravating depression and anxiety that I have to deal with every single day? The reality is God has ordained all things for the good of his people and for the glory of his name, Amen. even sickness. Amen. Now, I'm certainly, as you all know, I'm not against people being healed by God. I believe God does heal people. Don't get me wrong. But the reality is, is that when difficult times come, when chaotic times come, the only thing that's going to bring you through those times, help you navigate and make any sense out of reality is the sovereignty of God. You're not going to be able to make sense with all the pain in this world and even the problems that you even bring about in the world and in your own life, your own chaotic world. You're not going to make sense out of it. You make sense out of it in the sense of the fact that we are sinful people and we create a lot of problems of our own that can be remedied if we just look at the scriptures and obey God. But the reality is there's things in our life that we just can't make sense. But we will look back retrospectively down the road, years down the road, we'll look back and go, wow, through all of that, this is what occurred. Now I can look back and, and look at my past and see all that, all of those times where I stayed awake all night, worrying myself to death, all these things that I was worried about, really were things I didn't even need to worry about. Because God dealt everything for his own glory. For we read how he was described physically at the introduction of chapter 9, his beauty, Saul's beauty, his height, how he came to be, where he came from. We know that he came from a powerful father. He came from powerful stock. And the people looked upon him almost like he was a god. He was to be Israel's new savior. Remember, they did not want God to rule over them. They wanted a king just like all the other nations. But what we, what we must remember the ultimately is that it doesn't 
matter what the people think because people's thinking doesn't determine the reality of God. It doesn't stifle the sovereignty of God, nor does it stifle the providence of God. Just because you reject God doesn't mean that God doesn't own you because he does. God isn't limited by how you feel or how you think. So you can tell an atheist, well, I don't necessarily believe that. Well, it doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what's true. The reality is you will stand before God whether you believe that or not. And you'll give an account for your life for all the crimes you've committed against deity, all the crimes you've committed against him. You will stand in account and your own conscience bears in agreement with what I just said because God's given every man a conscience. They know right from wrong. Romans chapter uh, 2, 14 and 15 describe that the conscience bears witness with this reality. Why? Because Ephesians says that we're made in the image of God. We're to be imitators of God. Why? Because we're made in His image. We bear those marks. And this is why we know when we have sinned and we enjoy sin because we do it knowing it's wrong. Then we look at his three-day journey, Saul's journey and everything connected with it, his lack of success, his desire to return, his servant's advice, his destitution of food, his servant's possession of a coin for a present, his meeting with young maidens going out to the water, his presence in the city at a certain time. These events were all ordered by God and were definitely an attainment of the end of which Saul literally had no conception. Just when you read this narrative, you must come to this conclusion. Saul had no idea through all of this that he was going to come and meet the prophet Samuel. We see God's sovereignty working through all of these, all the activity, all the confusing activity, all the things were going on. We said, well, Saul was a, had a crooked kingship. You know, he was, he was disobedient to God. He was a rebel. He went to witches. He committed suicide. Yes, but Saul did some good as well. He was used by God to defeat the Philistines, God's enemies. God did use Saul. But the reality is we are Saul's by nature. Don't tell me for one minute you can look at Saul's life and not use it as a, as a mirror to your own life. Don't tell me that you just sit there and say, oh, look at Saul went to a witch. When the Bible says that stubbornness or, what is it, pride is the same as witchcraft. Rebellion is the same as witchcraft. How many times have you rebelled? Just this last week. Think about that for a moment. I always have to use an illustration. Imagine, imagine if someone could put a little recorder behind your ear and somehow that recorder could record every thought that you've had over the last two weeks. And we were able to take that and put that into a, into some, into a, um, into a camera. And we're going to show today, in front of everybody, all the thoughts that went through your mind over the last two weeks. Do you realize that if people could see, even your best friends and loved ones could see what went through your mind, they'd run for cover. They'd run right out the door. Guys, we are desperately sinful even though we have been converted. Yes. Don't look at Saul in all of your pomp and your soapbox and go, wow, I would never do that. Oh, you have been doing that since the day you were born. 
The reality is you're born again. You have a new nature. God has given you the ability to, to he's granted you the, the strength to say no to sin. And in reality, all you did is love sin. You love sin. You hate God. You're born again. You hate sin. But love God doesn't mean you don't sin. That makes sense? It's true. All these incidents and wanderings were only preparation for which God accomplished his design concerning Saul. And that was through, once again, the P word, providence. Providence should bring you a lot of peace, but also should, you know, it should, it should give you a lot of, um, I would say, a lot of security in the sense that you can go on with your life. You can repent of your sin. You can call upon the name of the Lord. You can cry out to God. And God in his mercy will forgive you. What does it say? Seven times the righteous man falls, but he gets back up. Today, don't come in here and think it's the end for you, that you've sinned to such an extent where you've literally out the hope of Christ. You cannot do that. You cannot out the grace of God. You just can't. But nor should you want to. Deuteronomy 17 says dealing with kings. And I always thought this was an important aspect to really pull everything together in who were kings, how were kings supposed to operate in the light of what God commanded. Well, Deuteronomy 17, 14 gives us the answer. It says, when you come to the land which your Lord, your God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it and say, now these words, let me ask you if these words sound familiar. I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. Sound familiar? Someone must have been reading Deuteronomy when Saul came into the picture. Because they use this to obfuscate God's plan. See there, to, to have a king, this is what the, they would say. And then he says this in 15. He says, you shall surely set a king over you. And here's where it gets sticky. Whom the Lord your God chooses. See, that's where the problem came in 1 Samuel, is, is the problem. First of all, Samuel is choosing his kids to be judges, which he shouldn't have been doing. He had no authority to do that. God raises up judges for his own glory. Mm-hmm. And you don't choose your own king. Even though, obviously, democracy, whatever you want to call it, we choose our leaders. Don't get me wrong. But here we see that ultimately God chooses. And he says, he's telling them, you know, pick this king. But pick one after God's own heart. He goes on to say, one from your, among your own brethren, you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then also in 16, he says, but he shall not. This is where it gets interesting. These are some commands that the Lord says a king should not do. Now I'm going to tell you why I'm illustrating these points. He says this, he says, but he shall not multiply horses. For himself. So we want to sit there and, and look at Saul and look at him as the devil that he is, right? But we forget to look at David as, as, as if David had the perfect life and God was the one who chose David. He sent Samuel to anoint David. There was a particular reason that David is going to represent the reflection, a prophetic representation of our true coming king, and that was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But here, it's the Lord had had a, things that he set here as things that kings should not do. One of those things is that he should not multiply horses to himself. 
David did just that in 1 Chronicles 18. Nor caused the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said, you shall not return that way again, which we see in 2 Kings 11.10. He does just that. Neither shall you multiply, multiply wives for yourself. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver or gold for himself. Paul or uh, David did just this. David had two wives before he even met Bathsheba. David and he had David. He had David had Uriah murdered because of the affair with Bathsheba. And a matter of fact, in First Chronicles twenty nine three, God said concerning David why he wouldn't let David build the temple or the house of God. He says, "You shall not build a house for my name. Why? Because you have been a man of war and you have shed much blood." David counted his army when God told him not to. And God had smitten thousands of his people over David's sin. So before we get into this arena where he's saying, you know, Saul is just totally just lives a complete life of absolute disobedience and rebellion and sin against God, so did David. I just read to you all of these sins that David had committed. We know Saul's Ministry was limited. It wasn't as long as David's in that sense. But the reality is Saul's sins are no different than David's. As a matter of fact, it's like David's sin was a little more. But they said that David's heart, there's was a heart that pursued God, a man after God's own heart. You know, how many of us love and cheer? We hear about, oh, you know, um, David, you know, he... He, uh, he lusted over Bathsheba, you know, he, and God still loved him. He's a man after God's own heart, and yet he lusted after Bathsheba. We celebrate David's fall of Bathsheba. Why do we do that? Because we, we want to celebrate our own lust. But we don't ever want to celebrate his repentance, do we? How many people do you talk about? Hear people talking about that. They'll run right to the lust thing because they want to cover their, their lust problem. They went, oh, David, he lost it, you know. And oh, so that somehow is okay that you do. But the reality is, is that we want to celebrate Christ. We want to celebrate this man. We want to celebrate him at all. It's his repentance towards God. Not fun, is it, to hear about that kind of stuff? I understand, but listen. And then in 18 it says, and it shall, this is Deuteronomy 17, 18, says also it shall be when he sits on the throne of the kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. And then 20 goes on to say this, that his heart, why would he do all this? What's the point? Well, his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. Notice when God had chose David, he said, don't look at the height of his brother. Forget him. I did not choose him. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, God. Didn't, didn't we just, we just, we picked out Saul. He was heads and shoulders above everybody else. He was the most handsome. He was cuter than everybody else. 
But God says, no, I choose a man after the heart, not the height. And this is what we see with David, that he was not lifted above his brethren. He sinned terribly. But he was a good king. He's a godly king. He loved his God. He loved his family. He loved his people. But he screwed up. As a matter of fact, it was said of reading a history of David, and it said that he would dress in such a way, addressing his people, that he'd be unrecognizable than the people that he was speaking to. He dressed in such a way that didn't make his appearance in such a way toward make other people lose their ability to listen to what he's saying because he seems so different. Now, it's kind of in leadership. You know, there's a fine line there. You want to be available. You don't want to... I mean, I honestly would feel very uncomfortable walking here preaching with a pinstripe suit and a black leather cowboy hat. <laughs> I'd have a very difficult time doing that. I just don't feel like that's how I should dress. I would feel very just out of place you know, acting like these big dollars, big spending preachers that walk around like they're celebrities and in the back of limousines and they got these big mansions. There's nothing wrong with people having money, don't get me wrong, but this is absolutely ridiculous. The opulence of some of these idiots is unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's nowhere in scripture. Well, what about Abraham? They always preach from Abraham, don't they? To excuse the way they want to walk around and talk about themselves is ridiculous. It's not... It's not how we're to, to, to behave as Christians. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was in the garden and when they came to attack him, the guards came, uh, um, Judas literally had to point him out so they would know which one to get because he, he looked just like everybody else. Kiss him on the cheek, then we'll know because he looks just like all the other guys hanging out. He doesn't look like some pope sitting there or some cardinal sitting on the stump. No, he didn't look like any of those things. He looked just like everybody else. Opulence and all that stuff. I just, but he, this is the point, you know, that he may turn, he may not turn aside because what pride do, it turns us, it turns us away from the things of God. We get a false view of ourselves and we become personally deceived. That the Bible says that he would not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand nor to the left. And that he may, he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. David committed these sins prior to coming in terms, coming together with Bathsheba. So all of these sins that he had done early in life that were covered up, that really he thought he got away with, storing up horses, storing up gold shields, returning to Egypt, doing all these things, he thought not a big deal. See, the little sins, the fly that ruins the ointment will come back and haunt you. Trust me. Those things you don't think will have any kind of um, impact on your life or ministry, they will. If you're hiding sin and you think you can continue to do and live this way and it isn't going to matter, down the road, it may be a year from now, two years from now, 10 years from now, it will catch up to you. It will. It will. That is the, that is the consequences of sin. It just does. We know that God forgives us, but the consequences remain with us until we leave. If you've harmed somebody, if you've hurt somebody, you're not gonna, it's not just gonna go away because you repent. It's still a reality that you're gonna have to deal with for the rest of your life. It came back to harm David. Next thing you know, he's supposed to be out going to the other battles. 
supposed to be going out. That coin, but that coin's been all over the church tonight. It's like, you know, he's supposed to be out going going out to battle with the other kings, right? What's he doing? He's in bed. Idle. Laying there. What happens when we're idle? Starts peeking out the window at the girl next door, right? Should be out fighting with the other kings, but he's not. He's peeping. He's being a peeping Tom, a voyeur, right? And, that, and his sin gets so to such an extent he covers it up. And then what happens to his son? Read about Solomon. He stored tons of gold. He did the same identical thing that his father did. He repeated the sins that his father never conquered. That's the same way with us today. The sins that you don't conquer in your life as a father, your sins will have to. Your, your sons and daughters will have to deal with those. That makes sense. It's true. I'm not talking about generational curses either. I'm talking about this reality of you not repenting of your sin and getting right with the Lord. Conquer your sin or it'll conquer you. Kill your sin or your sin will be killing you. It's true. The Bible says in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in the past, okay, was ever written of Saul and all of these things that have taken place was all written for our instruction. Yeah, I could go through the whole entirety, every little jot tittle, turn around every little word, show every little meaning, every little letter, every little thing, and you could leave here going, wow, I learned what that little letter meant. But if we don't understand the spirit of the law which is being proclaimed from these verses, and we're not instructed to godliness and to look at Christ, I have failed as a pastor and a preacher this morning. If the gospel isn't preached and your heart's not confronted with truth, I have completely failed. I don't care how many little letters and little words that I've spun around in the Greek and Hebrew. You need to hear the thrust and power of God's word upon your life if you're ever going to change. Walking out of here is feeling great about yourself every Sunday morning. It's not good. The reality is we need to all take a true look at our, ourselves. How else are you going to deal with your own sin if no one ever confronts you in it? What are you going to do? You just continue to live in it and love it and, 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 and not really be fully engaged. It's going to kill your relationship with God. That is even if you have one. But I do, I do. I said this in his prayer. I said this in his prayer. It means nothing. Without repentance, there's no forgiveness of sin. Allow me to uh, deal with this a little bit more before we close. This means that we can look at a life of a completely failed kingship and gain instruction. Yes, it's true. So that we may, through endurance, as the Bible says, and the encouragement of the word, be what? Sustained in hope. It may not be chaos. It could even, it, it very well could meet our view on insignificant events. Insignificant events can be a great damaging factor in your life. That you look at everything that may be insignificant to you as if it has no significance with God. See, God uses the hard word to say, the insignificant things in our life to glorify Himself, the mundane 
in this world. The things we think just don't matter. God, just the foolish things in this world, what? To confound what? The lies, right? The vile things in this world, God uses. God uses the, what we would call, you know, foolish and the wise, the weak, to confound what? The strong. This is God and how he works in this, in this, in our world. It's not always the mighty. It's usually the weak person that you never expect that God uses. Why? Because they're not basking in their own pride. Because the Bible says no glory will present. No, no, pre- no one will glory. No one, no flesh will be glorified in the presence of God. Hard time getting that out. Also, we must understand that there's nothing insignificant with God. We may not understand it. We may not see it. We may be able not to figure it out. But the Lord doesn't waste anything. As a matter of fact, he has orchestrated everything that comes to pass. There's no such thing as chance, luck, or fate. There's no such uh, thing as, as, as a good guess, fortune telling, almanacs, or horoscopes. There's only one thing certain, and that is the ultimate unchanging sovereign rule and providence of our God. Allow me to reinforce this quickly with some verses. Psalms 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalms 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it, the world and all those who dwell in it. What's he saying? God owns everything. Whether they're born again or not, God owns everything. Why? Because he created everything. There is no autonomy with God. There is no private life that you have. There's no secret portion of life that is autonomous from God. Everything belongs to God. Everything is ordained of God. God sees all things. He knows all things. And all those secret things in your life, the scriptures say, there's going to come a day and an hour where everything Jesus said will be revealed on that day. That's scary to me. That's scary. It should scare us. It's the grace that scares. We're going to be held accountable, brothers and sisters, for our lives. Whether you're a believer or not, you're going to be held accountable. Don't think just because you're born again, there's no accountability on that day, because there will be. Isaiah 46.10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure. Acts 17, 26 and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habits. The Lord is all about using the, the insignificant for the significance of his glory. The impractical, we could say, for his practical use. The impractical, that we would think that's very impractical. You ever got something, you're going to get a job done, and you get some tool and say, what in the world is this? How am I going to open this up with a butter knife? Right? You need a screwdriver, but it does work. There are things that are impractical. You're not going to hand me like a stuffed animal to pound nails in to the house. What the world looks at as a failure, foolish, God uses to humble the world and to exalt his people, yes, his church and his name. 
I mean, I look over the inception of this church and how it all began. Our family, we moved to Texas. We, be, we got on staff with another church. We uprooted our entire lives. We moved everything we had to Texas so we could serve in this capacity, not really realizing that after six months of our arrival, the church would dissolve or over a conflict of the elders. It isn't like me and my wife just came down here. We drug our whole family here. We have seven kids. So we had to bring U-Hauls and everything else, move our whole life here to start over, and the church that hired me on dissolves after six months of us being here. <sighs> what did we do wrong, right? First thing in my mind, I drugged my family through all of this. The hell of a legalistic church that was a cult. And now what have we got to show for it? How are we going to pay our rent? They're paying our rent for us. They're paying me a salary. How are we going to make it? God, you're not in this. Definitely not in this. But God was in it. And you're sitting here today proves that reality. That out of the dunghill, God produced 116 Bible Church. And this is why this church is here today based upon a failure of another church. What do you mean failure? I'm talking about something to such an extent where it totally was obliterated and dissolved because of their behavior towards the living God. I saw the judgment of God firsthand. I've never seen a someone's candle get blown out like that ever. Ever. But it did. So I look at the situation with our with our whole coming down here, where we are now, what's going on today, six years later. God is in it. I'm like Job where he said, Behold, I am, I am ins insignificant. How can I reply to you, O Lord? I place my hand over my mouth. That's a good place for my hand is over my mouth. When I start questioning the sovereignty of God and the providence of God over all the chaos that's going on in my life. Speaking of the impractical, the insignificant, and the useless, and the useless look at Samson. In the book of Judges, and how he dealt with the Philistines. In Judges 15, he says that he, that he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. What in the world are you going to do with that? Reached out his hand, took it, and killed a thousand men. Then Samson said, the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. And with the jawbone of a don donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. The Bible says he smote them, hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Well, why not a two-handed sword? Something more like a samurai type of thing going on here. No. As a matter of fact, he said he found the jawbone of a donkey on the ground. Picked that thing up. The impractical. What in the world? Did they do anything with that? Oh, you want it back. If God's got a hold of it, it will. And it did. John Gill says, this may be an emblem of the weak and the contemptible means of the gospel. The foolishness of preaching by which Christ has conquered and subdued multitudes unto himself. Heaps upon heaps. I know Christ struck me with hip and thigh, brought me down and raised me up to the new life. 
Once again, as we saw with Noah and the building of the ark, how impractical is that? Building an ark, and I studied this out, the Mediterranean at the time that he lived was a desert place inhibited by a lot of people. He's building an ark in the desert. How impractical. What in the world are you doing wasting all that time with all your family? Pounding and nailing. Can't even imagine what it would be like to build a boat this day like that. I mean, I'm not talking about all the things we have today that build boats. They did it all by hand. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine that? Building a boat that big, that way. And all that labor, and it's impractical. What are you doing? Could you imagine the work that they went through? I mean, literally, the, the Bible shows us anywhere from 60 to 75 years of hard labor under an impractical design. You're going to work like that for no reason? You're kidding me. And God used that in practical means to slay millions. Heaps upon heaps. Died in that, died in the flood under the total wrath of God. And God saved his family in that ark that they had built and they had trusted him in. That's the reality. That's the difference. We don't have to have everything practical. The Bible says the foolishness of the cross to them who are perishing, it's utterly impractical and foolish, worthless. doesn't make any sense. How stupid is that to say your God died on a cross? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. It's the cross of Christ. It's where he bull, just bore the full wrath of God for the behalf of his elect, his people. The Bible says when he bore that full wrath, he went down into the belly of the grave. And he sanctified the grave. He went down in to the grave. The Bible says he died, gave up the spirit, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. Defeating death, hell, and the grave. And if you want to defeat death, hell, and the grave, put your faith in Jesus Christ. You will not defeat death. You will not defeat the grave. You will not defeat hell. You must cast yourself down upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ if you want to taste that reality. If you're living in a way this morning, let me warn you. If you are living in continual rebellion against God, the God that you know exists, that your conscience declares to you every waking hour of your existence, unless you try to numb it out with your music or whatever else you do to try to numb out the voice of God upon your conscience, I warn you, I appeal to you today, Get right with God before it's too late. You do not want to suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. Trust me. You don't want to be under the wrath of God for all eternity. Where the Bible calls the hell, which will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, I love you dearly. But I do not want to see anybody here die and go to hell. Or you're getting a false gospel preached to you this morning that makes you feel good about yourself. You can continue in your rebellion or think that somehow you've done enough good things in your life that somehow it's going to pan out. It won't pan out. Trust me. The road to hell is, 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 is paved with good intentions. Hell has no exits. Once you're there, you'll never get out. 
This is reality. And I want to paint this picture clearly this morning because I love you, not because I'm trying to be a jerk up here. But I want you to hear me. I want to press in this morning that we would understand this reality. And he, how are we doing uh, back there with my time, sir? It's really our plan versus God's plan. Let us go ahead. I'm going I'm to end here and we will pick up where I left off next Sunday. Let us pray. Father, I just thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for the privilege to be able to preach from your word. I thank you for your people here. I pray, Father, that we would have a, a sober wake up today. Stop playing around with our lives, Lord, if we are. We would take this extremely serious. And this is a chance to repent. This is the beauties of Christ. That the offers made now to all those who do not know you. And Lord, not going our own way, not doing our own thing, not living in a way that we want to live and think somehow we can manufacture a Christianity from our own that God's going to accept is false. But that we would come to the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And we would come to you, Father, through Christ and him alone. Lord, grant the people in you who may not know you that they would turn to you. Children are not exempt from this call, that they can come to Christ. They can see that door and they can come. They can cast themselves down upon the living Savior this morning. Be honored, Lord. Be honored with strengthening your people and saving your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for that wonderful message. Please.